Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And so that brings us to chapter 5. Sex is one of God's gifts for marriage. Kind of the second part as we move towards intercourse. And you may be wondering, is there really anything else we need to know? I mean, I think we can take what you've told us already and we can get the job done. I mean, we're we're ready to go. Um, And one of the things I do want to be careful of is I don't want to give us the idea that we have to have a master's in sexology uh, in order to have a satisfying sex life. In that sense, I would say sex is not unlike tennis or most other sports, uh, that there are amateurs who enjoy the game more than professionals. There are professionals who learn everything that there is about their sport and they so want to master it that they just lose all the joy in it. And there's people who do that sport just recreationally and enjoy it more than those who are really good at it. But at the same time, there are those aspects to to any sport that those who tend to enjoy it most, uh, they understand some basic techniques or strategies uh, that allow them to get the most out of the effort that they put into it. And that's what I want this seminar to be a part of, is that the efforts that we put towards romancing and enjoying our spouse, that, that this kind of material allows us to get the most out of the effort that we put into it. Uh, Linda Dillo and Lorraine Pintus again. They say, if you feel confused when it comes to sex, you're not alone. And then they talk about some differences here. A woman responds to accumulated touches in many parts of her body until she reaches the desire to be filled up. While while a man quickly responds to direct touch of his genitals and feels the need to empty out. Uh, There's lots of differences between men and women, and some of them we need to understand. It's helpful, too. Sometimes we overhype those. But, uh, you know, just another aspect here when it comes to sex and difference between men and women. Uh, Part of it's just our hormone levels. I mean, if we think about it, the testosterone level in a man is pretty consistent. It doesn't fluctuate. There's no cycle. And that's why it can often feel like men are stereotypically always ready because The hormone level is always there. Uh, For women, there's a cycle. uh, And the the hormone levels fluctuate. And uh, that's not the only reason, but why uh, taking some time to warm up to the idea of sex is is more important. But as we talk about these kinds of things, and we move from foreplay uh, to intercourse, part of what we have to talk about is how do we initiate? Uh, Because for too many couples, uh, the plane crashes before it ever gets off the ground. Uh, They can't get past the initiation to get uh, to kind of soaring with one another. Uh, And so here I want to offer uh, some some guidelines, uh, but don't hear these as like point by point, five steps to effective initiation. Hear these as conversation points where you say, what are the kinds of things that we need to talk about so that we're on the same page here? Um, And the first point that I would make is just use mutually honoring language and actions. Don't refer to sex with terminology that your spouse finds offensive. 
I mean, that's just honestly not very smart. That's a turnoff at the time that, that you're wanting to turn them on. And so discuss with one another. What is the kind of language um, that we would consider honoring and comfortable using to initiate sex? I mean, would we say, do you want to have a date? Do you want to make a rendezvous? Would you like to dance? Can we enjoy one another? I mean, what is it that you would say? If you don't like those things, any, I mean, come up with your own language. Just use them as a conversation starter. And, and be clear. Here's a really bad way to inquire with your spouse about sex. You doing anything right now? Because if they say yes, you're going to feel like they said no to sex and they didn't know what you were asking. And again, that's where having some language that just clarifies what we're alluding to. Uh, Oftentimes, I hear one spouse say, they're just rejecting me all the time. And they tell me what they did to initiate. And I'm like, I didn't even know what you wanted. uh, And so just being clear. Invite, don't demand. Questions honor, demands dishonor. And so, if you're interested, it's much better to say, are you interested in? Would you like to? Then it's time, or let's get at it. Uh, Now again, if you know that your spouse is interested and you're affirming their level of interest, and you say, I'm ready for you, come on. That that can be something that's very endearing and playful. Um, But... um, if you're in doubt or you're not sure that they're up for it, then that kind of umpfrontness uh, is probably not honoring. Be realistic about your expectations. Uh, know your spouse. If it's a time when you just know that they're really tired and stressed, that may not be the most loving time to initiate. Or if you know that your spouse is a person of few words and your romantic ideal is that they be very uh, elaborate and expressive, uh, then you need to adjust your romantic narrative to the person that you married. Um, And this is where I think we have to remember that sex is a gift that we give one another, not a tax that we exact from one another. Uh, And oftentimes when things get tense around the the subject of initiation, sex loses that sense of a gift that we give, and it's you owe me. It almost becomes this tax that we exact from one another, and that just destroys sex from being what God intended it to be. And then a final point here on initiation is be balanced as a couple. Both of you should initiate. It doesn't have to be 50-50, but it shouldn't be 80-20 either. Because a balance and initiation is what protects that sense of confidence and voice for each of you. Uh, so that you both feel um, comfortable that if I initiated, I can do that. I have voice and my spouse would receive me and wants me. Um, as we talk about initiation, it inevitably leads to some questions. How do I respond if my spouse declines my invitation? How would I lovingly decline if, if it's just really not a good time? How do we protect these moments from getting into this kind of negative arguing that we hear about or that we've experienced? And if, is, it, is it okay for me to decline? If my body belongs to my spouse, as 1 Corinthians 7 says, is, it, is that even a legitimate option? 
And so I'd like to offer some guidelines here. Again, I offer these as conversation uh, starters, not as ground rules. Um, But here, one thing I would say, only decline for an important reason. Uh, There's just, there's not enough perfect moments uh, within marriage for there to be a satisfying sex life. And so only for important reasons. Um, Because oftentimes, the disruption that comes with declining, the awkwardness, the second-guessing myself, the the tension, the, the conversation, it just, that is more work than giving myself to the moment and enjoying a romantic encounter with my spouse would require. Now, uh, I think on the other side of that, resist interpreting decline as rejection. Uh, There is a temptation for many, maybe most of us, that if we try to initiate sex and we hear no, we think never. Um, And that is, uh, that's unfair. And it's dishonest. And that kind of unfairness begins to create this sense of unsafeness that sex requires vulnerability. It requires trust. And when we begin to respond to moments of a sexual encounter in ways that are unfair, we are cutting the legs out from under what would make for a satisfying sexual encounter. Another aspect is to pair a decline with an affirmation. Maybe it sounds like, honey, I love you and I want to. I just wouldn't be able to participate as fully as I know we both would like if we did that right now. When we decline, almost by definition, physically and mentally we're not going to be at our best. But we shouldn't use that as an excuse to be lazy in the way that we decline. Um, Pair a decline with another time. Maybe say, honey, that sounds wonderful. But if you give me 30 minutes, I think I will be much more engaged. uh, And I think it will be more enjoyable for both of us. And if you say that, you need to be the one after a time of rest of kind of coming to your spouse. Or maybe say, I'd like to, but, but what I think I would just be able to participate better if we got up a bit early in the morning. What if we set our alarms 30 minutes early and we start our day when we're both fully energized? Or, I like the idea, but, but the kids will be at a friend's house tomorrow night and I just think we could be a bit more expressive in an empty house. And uh, You know, those kinds of things where we pair a decline with a form of affirmation that just shows this really is something that we want. And then a, a final point on here on declining is, if you're declining frequently, uh, I would encourage you to be the one who initiates more frequently. And I think that's going to do two things. One, it's going to show your spouse that you're not anti-sex, that you do want to be with them. But then also, as you begin to initiate more, it is going to, it's going to begin to move sex into those natural rhythms of your life where it really does fit better. Um, and so if you decline frequently, uh, be the one uh, to initiate more frequently. And I think it's at a time like this where it's good for us just to pause and hear this word from Dennis Rainey. He says, sex and marriage is best compared to a thermometer, not a thermostat. It is the physical expression of what is true of a couple on the emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual levels. It is not a thermostat that if turned up 
will warm up your relationship. And oftentimes we, we just, we get that backwards. We think if we have more sex, we're going to have a better marriage. As if, you know, we go to the thermostat war and we're deciding how much we want to turn that up and that's how we make it warmer. No, it is by engaging with the marriage in all the ways that we've been talking about prior to um, this section of this seminar and the seminars before it that, that turns out the temperature of the marriage where sex will be enjoyed. And that's where I think we need to, to hear things like this. Marriage was not made for sex. Sex was made for marriage. It's not as if when God made Adam and Eve, He kind of caught Himself and said, Oh no, what have I done? I gave them genitals. I made them male and female. And I put lots of nerve endings and this is going to get out of control. What am I going to do? Uh, marriage, that's it. It wasn't like that. Um, God made sex for marriage not the other way around. Another way of saying that is, sex is not sin, but neither is it salvation. I mean, how many of us haven't got caught in the, you know, I want Jesus to come back, but not till after I get married, because I want to have sex first. It just, all of a sudden, we begin to think, as if sex is salvation. And, you know, heaven's going to be great, but I want to have sex before I get there. And I think that's the kind of thing where our goal is to enhance sex for all that God made it to be without placing these crushing expectations of placing things on it that is just more than God intended to accomplish through sex. Doug Rosenau, he says, if you want powerful techniques and easy answers, you may be disappointed in this book, or I would say in this seminar. God's plans often involve time, effort, and difficult changes. You'll discover that sex is more about an exciting process and a way of life uh, than it is a simple acquisition of techniques. In God's design, sexual fulfillment and intimate marriage can never be separated. And so, uh, at this point, what we're going to begin to do is we move uh, towards more sex-proper intercourse. Uh, we're going to use some stages of sex. Uh, and they're developed by Masters and Johnson, uh, the excitement phase, the plateau phase, the orgasm phase, and the resolution phase, to kind of walk through what's happening. And my goal here is that we understand the things that are going on uh, physically and emotionally well enough that we can get behind the momentum that's happening and contribute to it uh, so that there is a greater satisfaction in the process that happens. And so we start... Uh, with the excitement phase. Uh, and in some ways, that's what chapter 4 was all about, was keeping the excitement in the excitement phase. Uh, and when we miss that, again, what we begin to do is we begin to expect friction to do what only a romantic marriage can pull off. And then we start looking for risk and adventure and all kinds of other stuff we try to bring into our sex life to get it back. And we're really treating sex like a drug where we need something bigger, grander, in order to get the same experience. Um, now, um, if we talk about the excitement phase, and uh, one of the questions or kind of questions that come up is, how much time should we give to the excitement phase? I mean, should sex always be an elaborate production? 
Are quickies kind of like the sexual junk food of marriage? Um, Is it okay sometimes just to have sex out of compassion for my spouse more than just being consumed by a desire to be with them? Uh, And as we we seek to answer that question, I just want to walk through some types of sex. Uh, And this is not an exhaustive list. It's not even really a technical list. It's just giving some categories to things that I think we intuitively think about in a way to open up communication between you and your spouse. And so the first type of sex that does not make the list uh, is normal sex. Uh, And it's not that there isn't normal sex, but if we think about normal sex, then we we tend to get into some ho-hum patterns uh, because we create you know, a bit of a sexual ritual. We take off our clothes, we get into bed, kiss, rotate, kiss, rotate, intercourse, sigh, done, move on with the next thing. Repeat twice a week. Okay. And that's kind of how we begin to approach normal sex. So just a few things here that I think are normal sex rut breakers, if you will. Don't always begin by taking off your own clothes. Uh, Let your spouse do that. Uh, Don't always begin by getting into bed. Uh, Allow foreplay to begin at other places. Uh, Don't always have sex in the same room. You you may end up in the bedroom, but start anywhere. And don't always have sex at the same time of day. Uh, morning sex, afternoon sex can be just as enjoyable as evening sex. Sex before the date can be just as satisfying as sex after the day. Just allow some of variety in those kinds of things to, to break out of the rut. So again, a, a form of sex that, that does make the list. Quickie sex. Uh, duration is not the only or even the best way to measure the quality of sex. Um, there can be times where finding a brief moment that is particularly ripe and you catch one another with a smile and you seize that moment and it's just particularly rewarding and satisfying, uh, particularly at that stage of life where you've got young kids and you kind of feel like you're getting away with something instead of them. Um, now, another form of sex that didn't make the list, duty sex. Uh, that doesn't make the list because it begins to take a gift And treat it like a job. Whenever we put should or have to in front of sex, it begins to take playtime and turn it into a responsibility. If you say, okay, there's just going to be times when when we haven't been together and my spouse's interest is more than my own. I mean, do we just do... Well, here's what I would call that. I would call that nurturing sex. In a way that you are caring for. Uh, your spouse in a way that, again, that nobody else gets to. And it's an expression of compassion and nurture, not a duty or an obligation. But okay, there's times when we have sex out of compassion. There also should be times when we have passionate sex, when, when my desire for you is just very strong, and you see that, and that is part of what is affirming to you about how much I enjoy our marriage. There should be fun sex. Sex is fun. You know, there should be a time that if the choice is between a movie, engaging a hobby, uh, going shopping, or sex, sex wins just because it's more fun. Uh, we've you know, spent a lot of time saying that sex is more of a celebration than it is recreation. But that doesn't mean that sex isn't fun recreation. And there should be times when we engage with sex uh, for that reason. 
Celebration sex. Uh, birthday, anniversary, Valentine's Day, a significant accomplishment. Uh, this is a form of celebration that nobody else gets to have with your spouse. And so use that to celebrate the uniqueness of the relationship that you share. And then times when you have gourmet sex. Times when you think through candles and music, uh, fruit, breakfast in bed, getting away, full body massage. I mean, just where you take the time to make it a production. You know, in that sense, kind of think of it like Thanksgiving dinner. You don't cook like that all the time. But when you do, there's kind of two things that happen. You remember it, and you talk about it. And again, just having those times when you put enough effort into sex that we would come back and reminiscence. It is the part of enjoying everything that is special in our life. And I don't think we should rob the sexual aspect of our marriage from that same aspect of reminiscent enjoyment. So that's the excitement phase. And we move now to the plateau phase, which I just find ironic. If we're going to have people who spend their entire life researching and studying and writing about sex, I would think they could come up with better names. I mean, there is not much more sterile than 12-stage pair bonding or plateau phase. I mean, just come on, guys. Uh, But that's what they give us, so we'll work with it. Um, When it comes to the plateau phase, it's not that pleasure builds uh, plateaus and it levels out, but it's this time of, of building where there's this exchange of pleasuring, enjoying one another. Uh, And I think uh, the best passage uh, for the plateau phase of sex uh, is Acts 20.35. I don't know that J.D. is going to cover it quite this way when we get to this point in the book of Acts. Um, But when Jesus would say, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, That it's not that our personal enjoyment in sex is selfish. It's not. It's just that we know when I take my greatest satisfaction in seeing your enjoyment, that there is this cyclical building, mounting that happens, that the overall amount of pleasure for both of us is greater when I am a selfless lover who takes greater pleasure in your enjoyment than I do my own. That's why Doug Rosenau would say to us, study your mate's responses to know what is most enjoyable. No book can give you that information. Women, even more than men, vary about what feels good, even the strokes and rhythms that are most pleasurable. Be a lifelong student of your partner's body and reactions. Here's the way that I would say it. Books and seminars can give you the right questions. They cannot give you the answers. We can come to a place like this and we can go through 12 stages of pair bonding. We can talk about all kinds of stuff and we can give you lots of questions. The only person who can give you the answer is the person who's got their arm around you right now. And that's that part of where communication comes in. And as we talk about uh, this kind of mounting give and take and, uh, that goes on in the plateau phase, I think there's two sides of this building pleasure. Uh, that we need to understand. There is the assertive desires uh, and there is the receptive desires. And both have to be there for the ball to turn. Uh, The assertive desires, flirting, wooing, pursuing, teasing, kissing, touching, stimulating, praising. 
And both of you should go through those activities. As we're going through this stage, it should be alternating who's taking the lead in those kind of assertive desire activities. And then there's the receptive desires. Because how you respond to that uh, greatly determines whether this builds or whether it falls flat. Because without the receptive desires, it's kind of like a bowling ball that we cut in half and we roll it and it makes that turn and boom. And it doesn't go anywhere. And so what are the things that we do in the receptive desires? Smiling, squeezing, moaning, being amused, giving your full attention, verbalizing what you like, asking for more. Those are the kinds of things that begin to allow that ball of enjoyment to begin to roll as it catches more momentum. And so it's in light of that that we begin to go through those final four pair bonding stages that we ended off with number eight, and we pick up here with number nine of what Rosenau laid out for us. If that gets confusing for you and you're going, ah, how do I take notes? That's in the Fuller Notebook, so uh, it's just that that material fit better with how we were laying the, um, the content out here. And so number nine is hand to body. This is where couples beginning to move into those level two erogenous zones. Uh, this is uh, in chapter nine of Rosenau's book. Uh, he goes through sensuous massage, which is not some kind of Kama Sutra manual, uh, but it begins to go, how can we use massage and touch in a way that builds, it helps our spouse relax and heightens the enjoyment of the sexual experience? If you haven't picked up on it, I think it's a very good book for you to pick up. Uh, but this is where Doug Rosenau would say, too many couples are guilty of sabotaging their erogenous zones and sexual enjoyment with ignorance, with anxiety, or sheer effort. Intimate marital companions have usually never developed their sexual awareness to include even half of their erogenous zones on their body, and they often short-circuit their sexual reflexes. And so again, I think that's where hopefully a seminar like this and some of the resources that we're highlighting to you where you could go, I'm not doing anything kinky or dirty uh, if I pursue some of these resources. Uh, now the, the tenth level of pair bonding uh, is uh, mouth to breast. Um, and this is, again, kind of an awkward thing to talk about. But if you read the book of Proverbs, especially um, chapter 5, uh, God seems to celebrate the kinds of things that make us blush. Uh, there is a kind of pleasure and enjoyment uh, that when we have our hands that are relatively cold and dry, uh, that when you use your mouth that is a warm and moist stimulus, that it can bring a kind of pleasure that hands cannot. Uh, that it's in this kind of moment where we're getting to a level of abandonment. We're beginning to, Lord, losing the self-consciousness. When Doug Rosenau talks about the kinds of things that inhibit a sex life, what he says is when we begin to watch sex from the bedpost and we're beginning to think, are we doing it right? Is our spouse enjoying this? Is it going to work at the end? When we begin to have those kind of thoughts where we're looking at sex from the bedpost that really inhibits our ability to enjoy sex. And it's at this level where that kind of abandonment to the moment that is so important as we transition from the plateau phase to the orgasm phase that becomes vital. So mouth to breast, and then the 11th part of pair bonding, hand to genital. Uh, This is where 
many ways it becomes electric because there are more nerve endings in this area of our body than anywhere else. And there's a level of trust that develops. When you allow your spouse to touch you in these ways that are affirming, and there's a level of trust that you can earn as you show excitement under control in a way that honors the sensitivity that comes with this privilege of touch, then in a way that in few other areas of life that you can say, I value your pleasure more than my own in such a way that it allows me to express self-control in this highly stimulated and pleasurable moment. And then there's genital to genital where we come together, interlocking bodies in one flesh in a way that truly represents what Scripture is talking about when it says a man and woman become one flesh. And I think at this moment, if you've been married for any amount of time, you can begin to see that if we take just this moment of stage 12 pair bonding and we separate it from everything else, just that friction itself won't live up to the hype. It takes the kind of romantic culture and environment so that we have a relationship that we're celebrating in this moment that allows it to be what God intended it to be. As we're talking about it here, another thing that I think we we need to talk about is just that part of this, in order for it to be enjoyable, requires a level of excitement uh, that expresses itself in terms of lubrication for the wife. Uh, And if she is not physically prepared to receive her husband, then sex can either be painful or not as enjoyable as it would otherwise be. And that's why taking the time uh, in this area of foreplay that we talked about can be important. Uh, But I think at even a season of year like this, uh, when many of us have colds, uh, and so we begin to take an antihistamine. And what an antihistamine does is it begins to dry out our body. And one of the side effects of that, in any way that's not negative or bad, is it just makes it harder for the woman's body to be prepared to enjoy sex. And so being aware of that, so that if it's not as pleasurable, that a lubricant can be used, or that if it's difficult, that it doesn't feel like we failed or things aren't going the way that they're supposed to. Because it's those kinds of awkward moments that can very much make a husband and wife begin to wonder, what are we doing wrong? Uh, Other medications can have the same kind of effect. One of the areas that I hear it frequently is in antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications such as the SSRIs. Uh, And that's why many of the folks who are taking that kind of medication, uh, Wellbutrin has become the more popular medication in that area because it doesn't have the kind of uh, inhibiting effects on the libido uh, that the other SSRIs would. Um, But... You know, as we talk about these stages, uh, part, of what, part of what I want us to realize is not that we have to go through the 12 steps every time. We don't. But I want us to know what they are. And I want us to be able to see it so that we can be creative and we can utilize each of them, whether it's foreplay or not, just to enhance the romantic culture of our marriage so that when we do come together, it is the kind of celebration that God intended. Um, But we move now from plateau uh, to the orgasm phase. Doug Rosenau, he says, Orgasms are such beautiful metaphors of uninhibited worship and giving up control to Christ. You are allowing your body and your soul to soar with surrender. 
Apexes cannot be reached without letting go, which is built upon a series of individual choices. What kind of choices? The choices to say, I will trust you. I will choose to feel. I will choose to give up control in front of and to my spouse. And in here, uh, while orgasm is the physical culmination of sex, it's not the point of sex. You know, a parallel there might be fireworks in the 4th of July. Uh, Fireworks are not the point of the 4th of July. As if for some reason there weren't fireworks. We, eh, it's not worth celebrating our freedom. Wish we were still a part of Britain. You know, we, just, we don't do that. Orgasm is not the point of sex. To the point that if it is not achieved in a given encounter, we don't go, ah, why did we do that? If covenant love is celebrated, then sex is good. Um, and when orgasm doesn't happen, it can be an, an awkward thing for couples. And the biggest piece of advice that I would give in those kinds of moments is to be able to openly discuss that experience without a sense of shame or failure. Open communication is really the most important factor in achieving orgasm. Because of all of the things that create an impediment, it is most often uh, the emotional or psychological factors. And by psychological, I don't mean kind of twisted inner child. I just mean the emotions and the kinds of things that go on in our mind that impede us from giving ourselves fully to that moment. And if you say, what kind of things would we talk through? Uh, Appendix B is in your notebook in order to give you the kinds of things of what kind of questions do we ask and what kind of resources might we read and what kind of uh, in professional might we go see that would be beneficial in, in this kind of area. Uh, that's why Appendix B is there. Uh, but uh, in some ways, as we turn from some of the challenges of orgasm to the enjoyment of it, in some ways, sex is, orgasm is the most selfish part of sex but not selfish in the negative sense of the word. Uh, Not like to your detriment, but in order for orgasm to occur, I've got to focus on my experience, my joy, my pleasure in such a way that I am giving myself to the moment fully. Again, I might compare it to riding a water slide. Uh, If you don't have that kind of giving yourself to the pleasure of the experience, it's kind of like going down a water slide with your feet pressed up against the side. You may get to the bottom and you may be wet when you get there, but it just, it wasn't, it wasn't the ride. Uh, And there's that aspect of giving ourselves because if I can explain the biology here for a moment, that what goes on at the moment of orgasm is there's this rapid transition from the sympathetic nervous system is that part of excitement and arousal to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is that part of relaxation. And it is that, it is that quick transition from the climactic experience of excitement to the climactic experience of relaxation uh, that is the release and enjoyment of orgasm. And so in order for that to happen, it's things like anxiety and anger and insecurity that prevent the release of me being able to enjoy uh, that kind of experience. And so we move from the orgasm phase uh, to the afterglow phase. Um, And this is kind of that before we go back to -to day-to-day life. Uh, 
and I think it's in the, the resolution or the afterglow phase, uh, that we experience maybe most clearly one of God's primary purposes in sex, which is covenant renewal, where we directly or indirectly are able to say to one another, I belong to you in a way that I don't belong to anybody else. And that is a source of joy and peace and satisfaction for me. And if you, how do we, how do we draw that out? How do we experience it? One is just to verbalize that, to say to one another, it is in moments like this that I recognize how I belong to you and I just, I like it. But continue to cuddle. Don't allow rushing to the next thing to, to make sex feel like an activity instead of that celebration. Um, you know, one thing that may not be as, as obvious with this is being able to laugh. Um, you know, during the course of intimacy, there's, there's just things that are awkward and funny. Our bodies make weird noises and kids come knocking at the door and plenty of other things happen that if we're if we're uptight to the point that we can't have a sense of humor about those things, then there's going to be a pressure to get it just right that doesn't allow that, that afterglow, that resolution, that, that sense of covenant renewal uh, to feel as strong as it should be. And then also, taking these moments to reinforce and repeat all of the kinds of compliments and affirmations uh, that you would give at other times. Because there's just something about when your body is coming off of that excited high and it's on that, uh, you know, that intense relaxation and you're just kind of buzzing to say all of those things and let those compliments just settle in uh, with that kind of moment. Uh, that that's a time when you want your spouse to hear all of the kinds of affirmations that you would say at the other times. Um, now, um, as we wrap this up, uh, I want us to remember the real meaning of sex. Because m- my intent for this seminar was to be very much on the practical end of the spectrum. You know, we, we didn't take the strong theological bent where we looked at the temple and said, you know, there's the outer courts and there's the uh, holy place and then there's the holy of holies and this is kind of like... Yeah, it just, we didn't take that approach to sex. He said, God made sex to be enjoyable and to bring a couple together. And in our culture, to talk... It's almost as if sex doesn't belong to God anymore. And when we talk about sex, we're talking about Satan's turf. And part of my goal has been to say, no. God made sex and it belongs to Him. And it is wholesome. One of the things that I read that as soon as I heard it, I was like, this is true, but it startled me. Scripture talks more about the pleasure of sex than it does about being fruitful or being one. You've got the entire book of the Song of Solomon, you've got a whole bunch of stuff in Proverbs and other places. And so I wanted our seminar to represent that emphasis that I believe does exist within Scripture. But I think God made sex pleasurable because He wanted to show us the kind of relationship that He wanted with us. Not a sexual one, but one rooted in in this intense pleasure and enjoyment 
this connection that He was going to come to live inside of us and abide in us, invite us to live with Him forever in heaven. And He wanted something to show us that. And so I want us to wrap up with Psalm 63 because I think it's a picture where we hear that language of the kind of closeness. Not that I think Psalm 63 is a sexual psalm, but if marriage is to be the clearest earthly representation of how Christ relates to the church, then there should be places where we hear that kind of enjoyment and intimate relationship that we have with God. And we realize that is what sex is about. That is what it's supposed to be creating a picture of. So I just want to read it, and then we'll pray together. Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And I, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. If you would pray with me. God, we come to you. And we thank You for Your good gift of marriage. And we thank You that within that gift of marriage, You have also given us the good gift of sex. Lord, we we want to honor that gift. We want to honor that gift by getting all of the joy and pleasure that You intended to give from it. And we want to honor that gift by not using it for any purposes that wasn't the reason that You gave it to us. And Lord, we thank You that You gave us marriage and sex as one way of showing us the kind of relationship that You want with us. And we pray that as Your people, we would never confuse the gift with the giver. Uh, And that we would savor and delight and meditate on You and Your goodness uh, more than we do any particular gift that You've given to us. Lord, we love You. In Your name we pray. Amen.